Welcome to Let's Talk Agriculture, Episode 9. In this podcast, Oliver McIntyre talks to Tom Gill, Head of Sustainability at Food and Farming Consultancy, Promar International, about what it will take to meet the ambitious net zero goals set for agriculture across the UK. Here's Oliver. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our July podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Gill, who's Head of Sustainability at Promar International. Now, clearly, we're going to be talking to him about sustainability and that journey to net zero that UK agriculture has to go on. Tom, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, Oliver. Thank you again for inviting me to join you for this next podcast. A lot of the previous ones have been really interesting and looking forward to spending this next bit of time with you. Tom, for me, you're one of the most broad-thinking, practical and pragmatic thinkers about agricultural sustainability. Can you give us a snapshot of where we are currently and the amount of ground we need to cover to get to net zero? As a starter, on a scale of 1 to 10 where net zero is, is a 10, where would you rank UK agriculture on that scale at the minute? And don't worry, I do know it's really not that simple. Yeah, sure. I mean, you can't go very far these days, Oliver, without coming across particularly a conversation about greenhouse gas emissions or the net zero focus that there isn't a food or agricultural company at the minute that's not trying to fathom that very question and equally know actually what their starting point is. And I think that's a pertinent point to your question. I think there's a lot of great things going on between different sectors of agricultural horticulture at the moment. But I think realistically, I, we've got to be honest with ourselves and say that on average, we're probably somewhere between a four and a five. That isn't trying to say that we're miles away from it. I just don't think enough farms, enough supply chains and enough businesses really know what their starting point is. And I think that's where the concern is at the moment, that businesses don't know what they're actually committing themselves to. And really, we've got to take an honest, hard look at ourselves with a view that we can be clear with the consumer, but equally demonstrate the great things that we're doing, Oliver, really. Measuring both emissions and sequestration is something we've discussed lots of times, Tom. We know there are sort of gaps in our armoury at the minute. What sort of tools do we need and how close are we to getting those finite measurements? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are always going to be elements of our industry and certainly some sectors that are always going to produce emissions. So the, the focus that there is only one answer or that we magically get to a net zero number. I mean, I, I can't ever forget. I, I went a couple of years ago, went to Anuga, the last Anuga that was run before the pandemic kicked in. And there was a, a business in one of the zones that was embarking on a, a whole scale about a million hectares of tree planting that was its agenda to get to net zero. And it, it was the only thing that it was going to do, not recognising that it needs to offset its emissions every year for 25 years because of the planting that they need to undertake. So they're going to find a million hectares every single year to offset whatever emissions impact it had. And I, I think it's this simplistic challenge that I think our farmers, our growers and, and elements, you know, colleagues that I work with, find it really difficult to visualise. So I think when it comes then into your question around the tools and, and what aren't we doing, I think my desire is that there's more openness and transparency, that we worry less about competitiveness and actually mutually share what we're doing well, demonstrate the tool or the methodology that we're using, of which as long as 
farms, growers, supply chains are using a validated accredited tool, be that with the Carbon Trust or A another that's reputable and up to date with current methodologies relevant to the product that they are producing to farm gates. I think it's not really about the tool. It's not really about the methodology. It then becomes just being open about this is what we're doing. This is how we've got the data because that's where the gap is. People just don't think about the information they're putting into it. And they've just decided that it's not great information in. So it's not great information out. That is actually inherent weakness. So I think if we could improve how we source and help farms growers find that data and then they use that accurately to help them understand their starting point. We can then focus where the biggest gap is, is on the how. And I've talked about this a lot. You've heard me talk about this a lot over the last 18 months or so, Oliver, is that that two, five and 10 year plan, not getting too far ahead of thinking to 2040, 2050, but thinking, what am I going to do differently in the next two years, five years? And what are those longer term actions that might require more capex? It might require some new staff or skills that then fit into that longer term plan. And then also knowing that sequestration story where that fits into the armory, because we need to focus on reducing productivity so net emissions of what we're producing and then add in any benefits of sequestration because not every farm or grower will have the same sequestration potential. And some are going to find it a lot harder than others to store that carbon down in the soils and within the biomass that they've got above ground, Oliver, frankly. Yeah, Tom, obviously you talk about it at such a sort of a very intelligent level. I get in there at my usual sort of broad brush, simplistic approach, but I talk a lot about that sort of jigsaw approach where it's no good just working out what the sequestration of some forestry is and saying, right, I'll plant 87 hectares or 1,000 hectares, whatever it is. It is going to be that whole farm holistic approach of looking at efficiency, trying to improve that, looking at the sort of more productive areas of the farm and the least productive areas of the farm and what can you do with those and looking at the technology that's out there to help sort of reduce emissions. We can't just carry on farming the way we are and plant trees and see that as the solution. The industry does have to improve efficiency and probably change, as you say, change the way it operates and and maybe develop different skill sets as well. But was it ever any different in agriculture? I think the other side of the equation for sort of simplistic approaches, and we see it on a regular basis, is just reduce cattle numbers, fewer beef cows, fewer dairy cows, grow more pulses, plant proteins. And I've seen that argument presented many times to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Is that too simplistic an approach? It is, Oliver. I think also, again, for listeners, I don't want to speak so high level. I want to try and balance between the high level view that I've got and obviously the work that I do at a farm level. And at a high level view, we've just got to stand back and say, what do we want partly from our farms to deliver in terms of services as well, looking forwards. And that's not to turn this conversation wholly into a public goods for public money debate or about where ELM and future subsidy is going. But it's actually saying, what is the fabric of what our country can do really well? And it's a really insightful report. I know you're aware of, I've mentioned this in one or two forums that you and I have been in, Oliver, over the last sort of few weeks. But the World Resources Institute produced a really interesting, insightful report around the agricultural delivery agenda over in Denmark. And arguably, you could say there's a lot of crossovers of looking at Denmark and thinking about the fabric of our productive landscape from a farming point of view. That report advocates the positive benefits because they have a, a lot of 
high forage management. They have high quality health and welfare amongst their animals, not just in dairy, but across meat categories as well. It's far better that that country is producing meat and dairy than, say, maybe another part of the world that probably has to import more feed. It might be more exposed to soil losses. They might not have the ability technically whole range of different issues and I think that situation needs to be better understood in the UK and I I don't think it's widely recognised or appreciated because I think it's generally been that we've been vilified in agriculture and particularly when it comes to livestock sustainability and I think there's great work going on through the UK cattle sustainability platform through dairy networks that you're aware you and I are both linked into and equally equivalent into poultry you know we've produced a report recently with Brefepa showing about the pathway towards net zero We've got a lot of strong attributes to contribute to producing food in a safe, healthy, sustainable way, but also contributing into wider agendas as well, because the consumer cares about biodiversity and managing land and waterways in far better ways than we are doing. So, as you say, not everything is perfect, but we can do more. But also then saying what what actually, you know, from a dairy and beef perspective, the animals that we are producing it is also not understood well enough. I don't think the supporting reports around the Committee on Climate Change reports that were produced when the net zero plans came out 12, 18 months ago, they don't understand or recognise the scale of implementation around genetics, around fertility management, around genomic selection, around selecting. We're starting to be able to select a bull on a basis of their ruminant microbiome and the abundance of more microbes that reduce emissions within the animal compared to another animal that maybe has less abundance and could produce more emissions. Now, this is developmental work that a number of bodies, including SIUC, are currently working on. But the potential that we have to further reduce emissions before any feed additive has been fed and before any improvement in feed quality and dry matter intakes for those animals So if we're not representing that well enough in the baseline of what we then think is the art of the possible, all we're doing is saying that something is bad. And this is where it gets really frustrating that we need to be spending far more time to focus on the how and the solution rather than saying there's just a quick fix by saying we have less animals. We already have a footprint that's significantly lower than the global average. And we know that global data is not being appropriate to how we produce food in a UK climate. And it's not to try and absolve ourselves from multilateral commitments towards the Paris commitment and wider targets that will be reflected on through the World Food Summit later this month and then looking at the COP26 later this year. But let's get a positive focus of being part of the solution rather than just casting a brush that animals are bad because that is it's too simplistic, Oliver. Yeah, and I'm the master of simplicity sometimes, Tom, but some of those messages just aren't or don't seem to be getting out there very positively. Again, just to agree with you, pointing the finger and saying livestock's bad, arable farming's bad for soil structure is just far too simplistic. If you think sort of agriculture covers 70% of the UK's land mass and is responsible on DEFRA figures of between 10 and 14% of emissions, 
again, a little bit simplistic from me, but that means at least 85, 86% of emissions are coming from the other 30%, doesn't it? So it is quite a simple message, but it's, it's also a very good argument for people who have accepted those simplistic arguments of, you know, all livestock is bad. Some of the technology out there, as you say, about the selecting bulls, crikey, I, I left Ag College over 30 years ago now, Tom. I think if, if our dairy lecturer had walked in and started talking about selecting bulls dependent on their level of emissions, we'd have all thought they'd lost the plot 30 years ago. But, you know, that's how the world has changed, and that's how farmers are going to have to start to think. There's clearly more we can do to get those positive messages into the public domain. Do you have any ideas for that, or do you see it as something the whole industry needs to gather together to get behind? It's definitely the whole industry, Oliver. And I also think it's about putting our best foot forwards rather than, again, that pre-competitive agenda that we need to do collaboratively. You know, the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, SDG 17 is vital to all of the solutions that we need to tackle, all of the challenges that we need to take. And I think part of the, the action is actually communicating the compelling story about each product. And I was part of the HDB Carbon Week webinar series run earlier this year. And to quote what Harriet said from McDonald's, Harriet Wilson, she was absolutely right when she talked about that compelling story of how we work from farm level and how that product moves up through their supply chain that lands with the consumer, that not every consumer, probably 20 years ago when I came out of university, passionately believing that everybody has to change in a certain kind of way or make a decision. Well, I've probably realized over my time, you have to be, back to one of your words about maybe my thinking, you have to be more pragmatic and realistic than that. So if we have to solve the solutions, then we have to make the story be understandable for the range of different consumers that we're working to encourage them to purchase their food, not least at a very basic level that let's look at British food first and foremost for where that's possible within season. And I don't think we're doing that compelling story well enough. And we're getting bogged down in certain issues when probably they're not the strongest way of communicating that story. So it then adds to that complexity. And then when you overlay on top of that nutritional requirements or whether something's processed or ultra processed, I think you know, we talk about farms having multiple messages that get their heads in the sand. I think many consumers were, were confusing them. So I think we just make this information in a much more clear and understandable way, but that it's accessible to them and available in whatever platform. And particularly, very passionately believe with two young children in primary school, they are super motivated and super interested in where their food comes from and the story. And they ask simple questions that they want simple answers to. And that's not making it overly simplistic. It's just a very direct question. And they get the story and activities like FaceTime a farmer or what LEAF have done with the LEAF education approach is brilliant. But why isn't policy better joined up in the UK from an education point of view to tap into these things? Again, of, of a frustration of the, of the differentiation that we have now between four different nations. It should not be beyond the pale to get each of them lined up educationally to recognise, A, what agriculture contributes B, that actually children need to be better influenced around their diet choices and see how that then supports about these bigger issues that we're talking about, Oliver. So it starts with the consumer, but it begins with the child, essentially. Yeah, and there does seem to be a backing off. Certainly, when I was still in practical farming, we used to host school visits to some of the farms I was on. 
they don't seem to happen anymore. But as you say, Craggy, if we've learned nothing in the last 18 months, that video calls and all the rest of it are an amazing tool to use. You mentioned FaceTime a Farmer, which is a great project. I do think that there are a proportion of the population that are very engaged with where their food comes from and how it's produced and whether it's sustainable. And I think that's just going to naturally grow, as you say, as these consumers get to an age where they start having children. As with all parents, you tend to bring your children up with your views and your life. And that focus is only going to get sort of more and more. So there's definitely an awful lot of work to be done. And certainly, I think I would agree with you. It's something that needs to be sort of unilateral across the whole industry. Perhaps the traditional response has always been that, well, you don't understand farming, so we kind of turn our backs. I don't think we can afford to do that at the moment. No. I think that the, the reason why I make a few of those points is that I think the intangible in some of these things is always going to be difficult to get across. But if we can make it clear how the, the element around here of the engagement and the positive messages is very much aligned to that social sustainability angle and that flows as much into the farm walks, the farm events that happen. You just obviously passed the weekend with Open Farm Sunday. But all of these avenues help to tackle that positive, compelling story that we want to present around not just what we're doing now, but where we are going and how we are developing what we're doing. Absolutely. So, Tom, we'll look at that world where UK agriculture as a whole has got to net zero. Certainly a question we get asked in the banking sector an awful lot is, is carbon going to provide an income stream for farmers in the future? My view at the moment, I think, would be UK farming needs to sort of join together and get to that net zero position, even if that means some sort of inter-farm trading platforms being set up so the UK industry can say, yeah, we're at net zero now. And then any more sequestration after that, whether that's carbon sequestration or even natural capital or biodiversity credits, do you think we're going to see some of those income lines coming into farm accounts in the next decade or two? I think so. Almost, I kind of know so. I mean, that certainly, albeit I wasn't at Groundswell last week, you know, certainly following commentary through various different platforms, you could see how much that was capturing the, both the imagination and the questioning of all those that attended last week. And it's really interesting being connected into some of those conversations as well, Oliver, but also agreeing or saying, you know, what, what is the right starting point? And I think at a practical level, again, I think if a farm hasn't gone through the exercise of, of using methodology and, and a tool to both understand greenhouse gas emissions productivity impacts and then started to also look at the same time around what is their carbon storage, both on an above ground biomass. So thinking about trees, hedgerows, field margins, infield trees, to name but a few, and then the below ground biomass in terms of the storage within the soils and the land management techniques and many other attributes that contribute either to or not to carbon storage. Listeners really need to think about the steps at that first level of then how that transcends through into the mid-2020s where we'll start to see some of the schemes that are being discussed around future elms and about what that might mean. And all of us, to some degree, are hypothesizing a little about that. And I know current payment schemes are being talked about in some degrees, but there's no real depth, I feel, at this stage. But you can sort of sense the direction of travel. You then get to the point, well, at what point will some of these trading schemes, trading platforms start to then encourage farmers to 
get involved. And certainly over in the States, there's one or two schemes currently that are already in operation. And arguably, they're a little bit further ahead on a trading level. But I think it actually does need to take a group or a subset and actually that everybody has done the same thing and everybody is at the same place. I would encourage any farmers growers listening to just do proper due diligence and scoping around any contacts or anybody that's reaching out to them at the minute. It's around any particular kind of platform and also seek out some advice from trusted advisors and contacts that they work with just to help them be sure about what it is actually committing them to. Because to one of your points, we don't entirely know at the moment about will a farm lose the benefit of any trading if they then commit themselves to something. And also some of the actions as well that they'll need to think about is the level of permanence of the action that they're committing themselves to. So if they're actually receiving a payment, but actually that payment then requires them to maintain that land management activity for, say, a 15 to 20 year period. What does that then mean productively or unproductively for the farm? You know, is it, is it just encourage them basically to, to almost undertake sort of rewilding or passive management in a way that actually they fully hadn't appreciated? I can't just sit here saying that I know all the answers to those questions, but we can certainly help them scope and, and understand the feasibility of working through it to a point then of actually what is the value of carbon at the moment? And certainly at the moment, the valuing of carbon just on general is, is pretty low at the moment. A, a carbon credit is trading anywhere between 10 and 25 quid at the minute, depending on how that's calculated. And sometimes it's a little bit higher relevant to those that are focused towards afforestation. Well, that that is only one technique. And ultimately, afforestation only works if you've got a vibrant woodland economy. And I would argue one of the things that we have a very poor infrastructure on in this country is the woodland economy and we need to continually plant trees and coppice and create products that ultimately are then coming into the industry so there's still a lot of work to be done on on a woodland scheme but if we're saying that carbon in 10 15 years on a credit level is going to be worth 150 200 pounds a ton well that becomes a carbon farming activity in a different kind of way but don't think that that is going to come at an easy level And I think there's just this automatic assumption across all parts of the industry at the minute that because we're managing land, we're storing carbon. Well, it's it's not as simple as that. There's some really great examples. And then there are frankly some examples where it's just not happening. I think we need to go into this eyes open, be listening and, and working across the industry, ensure that we're working and using appropriate tools, mechanisms, know how that is calculated and then be clear about who we might be then working to. So I appreciate you know, scoped out a range of different issues around that area, but I want to be encouraging of future diversification of which carbon can form part of it. But let's actually make sure we've approached that well, rather than just rushing to, to one option or one solution that actually might not be the best in the long term for that farm. Yeah, I think when I have sort of one-to-one conversations with some of our clients, I talk very similarly. Doing nothing is not an option at the minute, but there's, there's a nice mid-ground. We've got a bit of time. There is a nice mid-ground of, as you say, investigating some options, sparking conversations, getting to some events, whether they're online, whether they're face-to-face, and just investigating. And the other thing, and that's a few conversations I've had this week, is let's not be rushing in to committing as you said, to something on the farm that may just go on ad infinitum. It may be a, a permanent agreement till the end of time almost. There does need to be a sort of backdrop 
line on it in order that you know that commitment. I think our time is nearly, nearly up, Tom. I have a funny feeling we could probably talk for days, never mind hours yes. about this, <laughs> this topic and still not get to the solutions that we're just going to wrap up with a, our usual final question, if we may. If you could just use three words, Tom, just to sum up the characteristics that UK agriculture is going to need to hit our 2040-2050 net zero goal, which three words would you choose? Yeah, sure. No, I'm really interested to think about this. So I think what comes to the forefront in no particular order, I think I've used it a few times already, but I think it's critical that the industry is collaborative. So that's the first one. I think the second attribute and characteristic is being innovative. So that thinking differently. And then the final one, which I think is most critical probably, is mindset. But without adding an extra word, you know, I say adopting a different mindset. And I just think that it all starts with how you perceive is a glass half full or is a glass half empty. And I appreciate these things are complicated by trade policies and the direction of range of different policy initiatives across four different nations of the UK. But adopting that solutions-focused mindset is absolutely critical because at that point, within reason, I think we can achieve anything. Yeah, some wise three words and elaborated on two. I realised when we started this, which three words would you use, that I'm going to have to come up with some every time we record one. So it's getting harder and harder for me to find something original. But I think I'm going to use three words and they're interlinked. I think my three words for this particular episode and a message to the industry is don't do nothing. Now is the time to start scoping things out, having a look. And as we've talked about, Tom, sending the feelers out and building some knowledge and some network up around this sort of sustainability, carbon, natural capital and biodiversity, just so you understand your individual business and the industry itself understands what sort of rules we're playing to. And those rules are going to become clearer in the next four or five years for sure. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. A massive topic, as we all understand, trying to be condensed into a sort of soundbite almost. But as always, it's been really informative to talk to you. It's been really enjoyable to talk to you. I look forward to meeting up face-to-face in the very near future. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much for inviting me and I echo much of that. Look forward to seeing a lot of people very, very soon, hopefully, Oliver. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and you'll receive notification of when the next episode is released, when I'm sure we'll take another deeper look into the topic of sustainability for UK farm businesses. All of our Let's Talk Agriculture podcasts are available to listen or download from the Barclays Let's Talk Business channel on Spotify, Apple and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening. We have a series of podcasts on our Let's Talk Business channel that delve deeper into important business topics and issues. Do add them to your playlist and take a listen. Make money work for you. We're not responsible for, nor do we endorse in any way, third-party websites or their content. The views and opinions expressed in this content don't necessarily reflect the views of Barclays Bank UK PLC, nor should they be taken as statements of policy or intent of Barclays Bank UK PLC. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no responsibility for the veracity of information intimated by a third party 
and no warranties or undertakings of any kind, whether expressed or implied, regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information given. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no liability for the impact of any decisions made based on information contained and views expressed. Barclays Bank UK PLC, authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority.